Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. My guest today is renowned anthropologist and author Thomas Reuter. He's an expert advisor to IPCC and UNESCO, board member of the World Academy of Art and Science, and fellow of the European Academy of Sciences. In this program, we discuss the implications of COVID-19 on social movements, inequality, political and economic elites, ecology, climate change, food security, and globalization. Enjoy the show and share it widely. Thomas Reuter, welcome to our podcast and videocast and our program. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Mariana, for inviting me. So you and I are both uh, fellows in the World Academy of Art and Science and uh, care deeply about uh, the future and creating, uh, ensuring the future of life. Now in the post-COVID world, we both agree that the importance of changing existing systems and financing that change is extremely important. So from your perspective, what are the most important acupuncture points that would help us achieve that goal? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> uh, what seems to me an important gap is that, uh, you know, you have in investors, um, basically uh, investing in order to maximize profits. A lot of fund managers uh, will tell you that it's their pecuniary uh, duty to do so. So there is this sort of profit motive and uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of pressure to maximize profit, okay? Uh, on the other hand, if you, if you look at uh, people trying to max, maximize, maximize benefit. It's it's a kind of a, uh, in some ways, it becomes a, a fear response. You think, <clears throat> you only need to think about the hoarding of toilet paper during the COVID crisis, you know, this kind of insane uh, obsession with, with hoarding material uh, resources. Now, I think for, for most people, uh, their, their their savings, their investments, it's it's their you know security, and uh, they chase uh, the highest possible profits because they don't know what will be tomorrow. Tomorrow could be nothing or a loss. So while you know while you can, you try and get as much out of it as you can, and I think that's uh, the, the the core of the problem. And um, it could be overcome by providing other opportunities for investment that are not quite as profitable but more secure i mean that's normal it's normal that you can opt for uh, more secure investments and for, uh, in exchange for a lower return but at the moment there's a real lack of those kinds of options if you look at uh, bank deposits or term deposits uh, bonds and uh, other so-called secure investments uh, in diversified credit and so on. We'll, we'll see that the returns are extremely small, often below inflation. And that means that uh, um, for, for a lot of people, that's not an option. And 
So they get pushed into the share market and we get these sort of phenomena where the share market is, is you know, exploding, even though the, 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 the Main Street economy is imploding, uh, like the last few months. These sort of, because it's just all this money floating around, not knowing where to go. And I think what we need is uh, investment options that uh, support sustainable uh, tr transformation, uh, transformation to a sustainable society that give a modest return, not nothing excessive, maybe, I don't know, 4%, 5%, most people would be happy with that. Certainly 4% above inflation, let's say. Most people would be very happy with that if they could have a secure investment at that level. So I think uh, that um, there's an opportunity there to create uh, green bonds uh, that to pay that kind of return and uh, support innovative investment in, in a transformation. So that's, that's one opportunity I see. Right, so from your perspective, also if you were to consult with the European Union, for instance, given the fact that they are really deeply involved in seeking solutions right now, what would you recommend them do uh, to do? What kind of economic model, for instance, would you recommend they adopt? Well, it's, it's, it's a matter of political will and commitment. And it's, inter it's interesting, those uh, noises that are now coming from the EU Commission, uh, from yeah, Van der Leyen and, and her allies, uh, in the European Central Bank and uh, also uh, Angela Merkel recently has kind of been making some noises, Macron, of course. And uh, there's talk of a Green New Deal. I mean, it, it all, of course, made, it matters very much what that means in practice. So uh, uh, that remains to be spelled out to some extent. And there may be some pushback uh, from certain interest groups. It's already happening as far as I know, a fair bit of a pushback. But uh, I think there's a good opportunity and Europe is, is, a, is a model you know, for the world in, in many ways because um, there is still, there's a certain commitment by, by the elite yeah, to, to maintain uh, a reasonably balanced economy, meaning, you know, limiting inequality and, and you know, social uh, maintaining social benefits for for the the population and so on you know like uh, you know harkening back to the new deal uh, uh, idea of roosevelt so i think um those are you know positive signs you know there's there's some will obviously to to try and uh stop this process of polarization um you know politically that comes inevitably with a economic polarization where you have large parts of the, the, uh, the, the society missing out uh, and becoming poorer rather than uh, uh, better off. And I think it's not so much the, the poor as the middle class that's descending, you know, the, 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 the part of the middle class that is descending uh, in the U.S., for example, you know, very, very clear. If you look at the work of Elizabeth Vaughan, long 
before she became a senator, I was reading her work on the middle class, which I thought was fantastic. And um, really, I mean, an eye-opener, you know, the fact that the middle class in 1970 in the US had a comparable living standard on, on one income, meaning one partner could stay at home and, and care for children. So on one wage, they had about as much disposable income as people now have on two wages or, you know, often working two or three jobs. So it's it's really, you know, that something fundamental has shifted there and people cannot help but notice that change and they're, they're concerned of losing their their um, privileges and their living standards so there's there's a backlash a political polarization i think in europe the penny has dropped you know that you cannot continue in that direction without having you know massive instability yeah so i think that's good and um how would what would I advise? That's difficult. Obviously, it's complex. You know, we have, what we need is system change. We need a transformation at a systemic level. There are different main areas. They are all interlinked. The interactions are sometimes negative, sometimes positive. So you may, uh, you know, for example, you may uh, allocate some land to um, growing biofuels. But you may encroach on forests, so you're destroying biodiversity. Or if you don't do that, you encroach on agricultural land, you undermine food security. You may be using too much water. Uh, you, you know, the forest you cut down uh, may release huge amounts of carbon in your crater than you can ever opt to make up with those biofuels, and so on and so forth. It's all interconnected, all the different SDGs or whatever model you use. To, to describe the systemic whole, the different parts are connected. It is a whole, so it's very difficult to to um, to have simplistic advice. You know, it doesn't really lend itself to simplistic advice. You have to have the whole system in view all the time and understand the main factors. I think the SDG are a good good guide, but there are other models around. Yes. Right. So you focused on our current economic system that is basically debt driven. It's uh, based on quantitative easing. We keep printing money. Uh, ever since the financial crisis started, we keep printing money, throwing it to bankrupt systems like, you know, banks at the time and uh, creating inequality that has risen that you refer to and that Elizabeth Warren referred to. So this is, on one hand, it's, um, it's a system that is, uh, has to push growth, print more money to support growth, otherwise it would collapse. And the downside, of course, is uh, that um, it creates the inequality, as we said, and we are borrowing from the future, expecting our children and their children to pay for it. At the mm. same time, we have another phenomenon that is arising that is not um, uh, inflationary, it's deflationary, and that is uh, um, exponential growth, technological exponential growth that uh, rides mm. uh, on an exponential curve that is, has, is now uh, disruptive, uh, disrupting all of our 
systems because mm. uh, that are more or less uh, have been digitalized. So on one hand, we have the deflation and on the other, we have the inflation. Deflation created the, you know, through technology that makes everything cheaper and more compact and yet is driving us. And we see how COVID-19 has, uh, has uh, brought us to the forefront and we're using now uh, these technological developments in order to communicate, to still stay in touch. How do you see these being reconciled with one another? Well, see that anybody is addressing this. Uh, there is a huge split, and at the same time, of course, is something that you brought up: is the grand global challenges, hmm. from climate change to a, uh, unsafe AI, for example, or unsafe biotechnology or nuclear threat. Well, that's the thing. You know, inequality is really the the, the key issue. On rising inequality. I mean. Let's be honest, a perfectly equal society has never existed and I will never see one exist in my lifetime. And if in, in the distant future that should ever come to pass, good luck, but I'm not going to wait for that. Inequality is probably to some degree inavoidable, to some degree perhaps also okay. Some people are willing to work harder than others. Some, yeah, some people have more talents, a moderate degree of, of incentive for people like that might be okay. You know, I don't have a problem with that. But we have massive inequality. And and the consequence is that you have these financial interventions, you know, by the central banks, the money printing, you were talking about quantitative easing. But look at the inflation rate. It's not going up. It's flatlining, you know, and it's flatlining because that money flows into asset bu bubbles. It doesn't flow into prices or because it doesn't go to the consumers. Uh, so it, it goes straight into asset bu bubbles. It, uh, it props up the stock market, not the real economy. And that's, I mean, a lot of people have been, you know, critical about, uh, for example, the, the, the most recent wave of, of uh, uh, economic stimulus and that it hasn't properly uh, uh, found its way into the real economy, that it isn't really driving innovation so much, that cuts are made in education, um, and so on. So the money's not really uh, flowing where it should go. Otherwise, we would have inflation. Okay, so it's a clear sign that the, the the stimulus is is you know flowing into an unequal system and it just floats floats the the asset bubbles that are already there whether it's housing whether it's share markets and those who missed out on that uh, so the ones who are in in that yeah who are shareholders you know significant shareholders or uh, uh, real estate owners their boats are lifted by the tide but everybody else is left behind. And the consequence is that you have uh, unaffordable housing now in many cities in Munich, where you live, for example. Um, classic case, you know, Berlin is starting like that, Frankfurt in Germany, uh, places like Paris, London, you know, a lot of major cities and, and also medium cities are now becoming unaffordable for people because there's this disconnect. And it's all comes from an attitude uh, of not caring about uh, 
who the economy really should serve, and that is the people. Yeah. Uh, the economy should serve the people, not the other way around. And it shouldn't serve just a small minority. And while you can have some inequality, you might have entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, my own family were family of entrepreneurs, and I'm, I'm sort of a bit odd, having become an academic, uh, though a somewhat entrepreneurial uh, academic. I've been, spent most of my time on, on uh, project money and fellowships and, you know, external money and not really dependent on the, the academic system. So I've, even that I've approached entrepreneurial and I don't, I'm not opposed to that. I have great respect for entrepreneurs. Um, but the thing is, you have to, you know, if it's just profit motive and if, if it's just extractive, extracting resources from the social capital that is there, the society, you know, from uh, the natural capital, from, from the ecosystem. It's just about extracting, then it's not really a proper entrepreneurship because an entrepreneur is someone, in, to my mind, who wants to distinguish him or herself by leading, by leading and by generating employment and creating uh, something new, new, new products, new services uh, that are beneficial. And they get their satisfaction uh, from that success, from, from the creative act itself, not so much the money. That shouldn't be central. If that's central, then it's, it's to me, it's kind of like a, a form of entrepreneurship that's predatorial. It's not social. It's not uh, uh, moral. So I guess what I was saying earlier in Europe, I think there's still signs that the money elite and the, the industrial elite has some sort of sense of, of uh, obligation, certainly to a greater extent than, say, in the US or the UK even. Uh, we've seen with COVID, you know, how that attitude plays out in the number of casualties, uh, you know, that different countries suffer and suffer the number of infections. You can clearly see, you know, there, there are differences in the level of, of care for the population. And uh, uh, it's not perfect anywhere. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have all the problems that we have in, in Europe also yeah, with, with uh, housing bubbles and with, you know, political polarizations and, you know, re-emergence of, 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 you know, populist uh, ideologies and so on. So we have the problem, but it's not as extreme, and uh, it matters. Those differences really matter for people. Uh, they, the outcomes are very different. So, but it could be uh, could be improved in in Europe too. And yeah. So, what would you recommend? Um, what kind of policy interventions would you recommend uh, be enacted upon? How would you change your, your, the measurement criteria, for instance? How would you suggest moving from for profit only as a measurement criterion to um, multiple bottom lines, for example? What would have to happen? What kind of legislation would have to occur in order to implement that from your point of view? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, there, there are many ways of looking at that. On, on, ultimately, it's about values. What do we value? We design an economic system for what purpose? 
you know, and the purpose is defined by our values. Uh, if we value value a fair society where you know inequality is moderate, okay, where uh, people have opportunities, people have access to good education, you know, we we both are good examples of what access to good education can do. You know, and what a loss for the world if people with this potential aren't giving those opportunities. It's crazy. I mean, if I look at uh, some of the policies that uh, um, operate in, in, in Australia, also the UK, you know, I've spent a lot of time in English-speaking countries. I understand them quite well. Um, and I look at the Germans, and I think that, well, Germany's been smart, you know, not, not kind, but smart in investing in public education. And they had a brief moment when they thought, well, fees for university courses, maybe we should experiment with that, but they drew back. They were smart enough to, to stop those experiments because uh, the success of Germany as a nation is built on uh, having a highly educated workforce. It's our biggest assets. We don't have uh, oil reserves. We don't have uh, a vast amount of other natural resources. We are a small, highly populated country. Our resources, people, and uh, to leave that to to a private system like in Australia, where you know you send your child to high school, you, you know it's like twenty five thousand Australian dollars a year. Then you go to university and it continues. You know. So it's it's uh, it's it's a system designed for destroying certainly the lower middle class, okay, or impoverishing them, you know, and debt, indebting them. Look at the you know the uh, educational debt level in in the U.S. Also, you know, so so it's you know I think the spending has to be wise and it has to to think about outcomes and what are desirable outcomes. And ideally, I mean, in a in a democracy, this should be negotiated. There should needs to be public debate. You can't dictate, and no one has a right to dictate what should be the aim. It should be there should be public debate and a, a, a common common uh, cons a consensus. Okay, and um, then funds are allocated accordingly in education, in health. Look at the American health system. Uh, you have uh, the most expensive health system in the world, largely private, and it's not delivering. It's uh, delivering for a few, no doubt. You know, For a few, it works okay, but by and large, as a whole, it doesn't really work. So I think uh, public education, public health is very important. I also think certain industries uh, should be more regulated, maybe broken up, some of the tech giants, because these are public goods, like search engines. There's nothing much to it, really. I mean, it should be, uh, it should be uh, basically common property or public good to have those facilities. Yeah, I, I, it shouldn't be really private. It, it's, these are natural cartels. Many many uh, industries are natural cartels, so you, you end up with a situation that's anti-capitalist. You have a cartel that's the 
that's poison to a, a genuine capitalist system which thrives on competition. But if you have a cartel, then it doesn't really, it's not really capitalist anymore. It's, it's I don't know, what do you want to call it? I mean, uh, it's a cartel. And they should be either, uh, you know, in public ownership or broken up. Probably in public, some, it depends on the case, yeah. So those are some 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 important aspects. But yeah, I think system change is important, systemic thinking, and because action for sustainability is always ultimately local, it's got to happen in some place. It's not utopian, meaning no place, it's some place. Okay, otherwise it'll be always utopia. It has to, utopia meaning place. It has to be in place. And one of the, the problems is, a structural problem is that the uh, uh, local governments, certainly in, in Germany, but in many places, are uh, starved of funds. They don't have access to a large enough proportion of government, overall government revenue to actually do the changes. And even with those level, limited resources, they're doing quite a lot. In fact, everything that is being done, they are doing it. So allocating more funds at lower tiers of government and also supporting community activities, funding community activities would be very good because if they are funded and communities become more actively involved, People hear about it, they join in, and, and you know, uh, you create change by, by uh, yeah, directing funding to those local activities. Also local businesses, by the way, yeah. Small businesses employ a lot of people, um, uh, produce a, lo a lot of, 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 of uh, economic uh, uh, output. Uh, incidentally, also small farmers, you know, like small farmers worldwide on a third of the land produce the vast majority of the food we eat. And the remaining food that's produced industrially is mainly sugar and fat, you know, meaning, you know, uh, uh, corn syrup, uh, things like that, uh, canola oil, things we could really do without, okay. So, you know what I mean? Small is beautiful. I really like that uh, that motto, uh, which goes back to E.F. Schumacher's uh, uh, economic theory. And um, yeah, so not too top heavy, sort of pay more attention at the local level. I mean, you know, in designing uh, uh, new econ economic models. So that's my. It doesn't mean you don't have cooperation. Um, very much in favor of, of uh, the EU and other multilateral uh, forms of cooperation. We need that. But it still has to happen locally and every place is different. Every community has a different culture, different history, different resources, um, different population density, everything, diff completely different parameters. So you have common goals, but you have each have to find your own they all, uh, each place, each community has to find their own a way yeah, to realize those goals. So, yeah.
I couldn't agree more. So from your perspective, how would, how do you think, could we manage to get the funds that are currently being printed, the dollars, the euros, uh, to the organizations that you mentioned, the farmers, the entrepreneurs, currently there's a hard, difficult way. And we know mm. that the quantitative easing of the past decade didn't quite reach those who, uh, who needed it uh, because mm. of the ways we we de-risk so that didn't work uh, not in, at least not at scale and now we need to scale that investment process in that mm -hmm. decision uh, for screening so what are your ideas around that yes how do you allocate the funds that's a good question yeah that's not an easy question because um you see in in, in bureaucracies you know the, allocation of funds to to large pools is a lot easier than allocating it to a million different places so there's always this tendency to pile more on the piles that are already there you know, uh, look at the bailouts you know it's it's about saving the big companies you know um to, you know, in Germany, the, the, the car industry, Lufthansa, you know, and so on. It's, it's not so much, there's not so much, it's much harder to support small businesses uh, unless you decentralize it, you see, unless you decentralize the, the, the process. If they'd, for example, said, okay, well, um, half of all the funds, will be distributed to local governments to support their local businesses. Then for them, they, the, the question, who are the big fish, you know, in, in, in our place, yeah, in our jurisdiction, they would be relatively small fish on the national scale in most cases. Yeah. They'd be medium-sized companies, smaller companies that are very important where they are, and to those governments, it would be easy to do. They, they, might, they can immediately tell you what are the 10 biggest employers in, my, in, in, in our jurisdiction from, from, from you know, tax revenue that they get. They, can, they, can, they know what's important for their local economy. So if you, if you task them with distributing some of these funds with good, com, uh, good criteria, that would have been better. So I guess part of it is about uh, involving uh, lower tiers of government in the distribution of funds rather than only looking at the national level. Uh, so that way you can be much more, it uh, can be much more targeted. And the other thing is innovation. You know, I mean, we're still, uh, you know, globally, and in, in you know many many nations uh, subsidizing fossil fuels massively, huge sums, that would be enough to, to probably to to realize uh, the, uh, the the SDGs to a large extent. The other thing is defense. Uh, I just read today Australia announced a fifty percent increase in its defense spending over the next ten years. Okay, we appear to have no other problems other than defense. Okay, uh, 
if you ask them, well, what about uh, sustainable development, renewable energy, or or how how about gas? You know, how about gas or coal? You know, um, which is uh, they have a, actually a national COVID commission. You know, COVID reconstruction commission uh, that was headed by you know people, you know, lobbyists from the the coal and gas industry. You know, so what do you expect? So that's another major problem. I mean, you can't uh, you can't change the economy if uh, it's not in our hands. You know, if if the system is captured, you know, if the political elites are captive to the to the moneyed elites, then you know, it's, they're not going to be uh, leading that process. So I really think. Also, it's it's really time for the the moneyed elites to wake up to their responsibility if they want to control everything. You know, it's just like you know you you're in the car with with somebody, okay, and you don't like the way they're driving, okay. So you kind of ask them, they're the driver, but you push them out of their seat. And you take the the wheel, okay, from the from the passenger seat. Well, if you want to take the wheel, you better know where you're going. You better know how to do it. Okay. So I, I feel that there's there's a real uh, a lot of pressure now on 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 those people to wake up to their responsibility, which they don't have officially, but in inofficially, they do have that responsibility because they actually control and not the democratic elected elected representatives who are dependent on them for their you know, election campaign funds and, and 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 so on and so forth. So yeah. So there's a it's a matter of um, responsibility, yeah. taking responsibility, accepting responsibility. Yeah. You mentioned uh, earlier that um, the small and medium enterprises play um, a decisive role in changing the economy and. Uh, participating to it and the numbers are quite clear it's 90 percent of all businesses are small and medium enterprises uh 50 percent of uh employment is uh and 55 uh, percent of the gdp minimum uh worldwide come from uh comes from uh, small and medium enterprises how do you see their role changing right now because from my personal experience over the past 30 years as a serial entrepreneur and investor small entrepreneurs do get it they are so close to the ground. They don't care about, uh, you know, financial sustainability. They do care about, uh, you know, making their idea work and they do care about their values. So how do you see them participate in, in, in this transformation right now? Well, um, obviously they're, they're operating in, in numerous different fields. Uh, I know you, you are, very much interested in in IT and and AI fields and all that. Um, how will they contribute? Yeah, well, it's difficult difficult to say. I, I think uh, obviously we we um, there'll be a new new um, new ways to produce energy sustainably. New ways of um, uh, dealing with waste. Ways to replace uh, uh, plastics, for example. You know, there's so many areas where where innovative small companies are making a mark. Um, 
plastics is a good example. You know, they are, they are now many, many experiments with different ways of recycling using biological processes, for example. There's so much going on. Also developing plastics that are from the production and already uh, designed to be uh, basically edible, yeah, to at least to bacteria. Okay, so there, there, there are way, there's a lot to be done there. Also with, with uh, um, energy, you know, hydrogen fuel, so fuel cells, battery technology. There's there's so much there that needs to be done, and uh, often the, you know the the creative ideas are. Uh, don't happen in the center of things, but at the margins, okay? It's always uh, the, the, the living, you know, look at the cell, for example, it's the, the cell wall where the election is, yeah. Everything else is kind of business as usual, but at the, at the boundary, there's innovation, there's new things. So these people are at the boundary because they're not well-established firms, they're not secure, you know, they don't have a scam happening whereby they extract millions of dollars every day doing nothing. They actually have to do things to make money. They have to actually deliver, not, not just a profit, but above, above the, the, the call of duty. They have to be exceptional to succeed, you know, because it's a, there's comp there really is competition. They have to be really outstanding, their products, their ideas, and that's why they are. Yeah, so I think they'll make a huge contribution and they, they could be supported. I mean, there are, of course, government schemes uh, to help startups, uh, you know, uh, for example, you know, Swiss in Switzerland, you know, very big operation. I think it's helpful, but more could be done there. And uh, uh, also it's, it's very difficult for investors certainly retail investors you you i shouldn't tell you this because you know a hundred times more about that but for retail investors it's very difficult to access uh, that kind of uh venture capital um market uh and it's 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 high risk but if you have good evaluation processes which you do um then um you can minimize risk and you can spread it, you know, you can bundle it. And it. I think a lot of people would be interested in putting their money there rather than um, somewhere else. Yeah, as I said, you know, um, if, if say you could have a government backed fund for small enterprises, so that's got some kind of backup security maybe from government and a modest uh, 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 gain and from that fund that comes from investors who, you know, um, you could uh, finance those enterprises, you know, by all means screen them somehow, have a screening process, but make more funding available to that part of the economy. Yeah? So they can tap into it. They don't have to, uh, you know, convince uh, so conservative investors or banks. Um, sometimes the risk can be too high in individual projects, but overall, um, if 
there, there are ways to spread that risk um, that would help attract more investment there. Right, so one of the de-risking criteria um, is um, contained in the measurements, the metrics by which we measure success. And sure. uh, so you spoke about investing with your values or building companies with your values or being a politician that uh, appreciates value. We, and we can only achieve what we measure. So from your perspective, how would our measurement criteria for success would have to change in order to bring those values into the overall way of uh, measuring our future? Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> it's, it's about uh, externalities, you know, it's, uh, to a large extent. Um, we've been measuring uh, um, companies in very simplistic terms and, you know, the amount of profit they generate uh, relative to their, you know, level of capitalization. And um, that's not enough. And, you know, we have a regulatory environment where they can operate like that. They have limited liability. Um, they, they don't pay for environmental damage. They don't, don't uh, uh, pay for social damage, for, 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 for not paying their employees enough, for example. Uh, for uh, just an, in, an anecdotal little tidbit of information from again from from Australia recently, there uh, there were uh, uh, steps taken to actually criminalise wage theft. Now, wage theft is if there's a there, you know there's an award in a particular industry and you don't pay people at the award rate, so that's theft. It's theft. Until now, nobody's ever gone for to to jail for that kind of stealing. Now, if you if you steal a, a you know a, I don't know a book or you know a piece of cheese in a shop, you, you might go to jail. You know if you keep doing that. But there, you can just yeah, no problem. You know you can steal from from your labor force. It's okay. You know that kind of thing. So I guess. Um, uh, there should be criteria uh, that reflect how a, a company uh, deals with all its stakeholders, its customers, its employees, its investors, not just the investors. Okay, then um, basically that's a, a company that does all that well is a well-managed company and it's likely to be very stable, have good commitment from its workforce um uh its workforce is probably likely to be slightly less neurotic and and scared and uh, and uh, hateful towards each other more cooperative you know people if you really push people they become uh unable to cooperate you know the trust level drops you have this sort of unhealthy situations you know where everybody's scrambling fighting for survival that's not how oh, you get the best out of people. So generally, these are not, it's not just feel good, but it's just, it's about healthy. It's not just feeling good, being healthy as a company in a very broad sense. 
then you serve the society, the poorer society. And I think such companies are, tend to be also profitable. And I think, you know, some of the experience from SRI, socially responsible in, in investment or, or, or similar, similar uh, metrics, you know, these are all different measurement schemes. You know, how do you define SRI or, you know, or, or other sustainable investment uh, uh, concepts? They all kind of ultimately come down to metrics. And uh, it turns out that portfolios that use those metrics or, you know, companies that are score high on those metrics have done very well, very well indeed, because they're quite healthy companies in that broader sense. So it's not bad for investment. It's not feel good. Healthy actually is also means strong, you know, strong performance and, yeah, which in, in my case, I can, I can attest to the fact that actually the financial bottom line is way, way much more successful than uh, if you add that uh, to the way of building a company, running a company and so on than if you don't. So the financial bottom line is way, way more, much more successful, which brings yeah. us to the um, other topic of, uh, of today's conversation, mind shift. So how can we achieve mind shift at large scale, larger scale? I mean, and you're an expert in that. You've uh, spent decades in your life uh, becoming healthy, as you call it. Can you share with us your secrets? What are the top acupuncture points of a healthy mind shift? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, in my professional capacity, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a scientist, I'm a social scientist, a professor, an academic, you know, all that. So science to me is very important. But... Uh, Psychology is also science. It's not widely accepted... <laughs> But psychology I've psychology is for three years, and I've, <laughs> you know, I've spent decades reading psychology. So I, I, I'm a kind of an honorary psychologist as well, somewhere. Um, but mainly an anthropologist, um, which is another long story to explain that. Most people don't know what that means, but never mind. Um, Our listeners. What I was trying to say really is that, you know, I'm, I'm very much... Uh, supportive of science and evidence and reason. Yeah. But there's more to it than being cold, calculating, intellectual. That's a misconception. The, or it's, it's sort of a, a limited, limited point of view uh, or perspective on knowledge. And it's, it's, I think, at the heart of many of the problems that we experience. Uh, for one, if you look at theorists uh, like Jürgen Habermas and so on, you know, uh, Bertrand Russell and many other philosophers, you, you realize that you cannot have reason, you, know, you cannot have science if you don't have democracy, if you silence people, okay, if you don't let people participate. So you're not going to have the truth or the whole truth if you exclude. Truth is about inclusion, because the truth is not absolute. It's as good as our um, ability to pool 
our mental capacity, our collective mind, is as good as our, our, as uh, the inclusiveness or the level of inclusiveness in our societies. So democracy and science, to me, are inseparable. Okay, of course you can have a sort of reductionist science. You can have a totalitarian society and you have nuclear scientists there to, to, to develop a bomb for your glorious leader and all that sort of thing. But that's not science the way I understand it. That's kind of a, a science that become, has become enslaved. Uh, <clears throat> that's become totally instrumentalized. And that's what's happened since the Enlightenment period or the, the Renaissance, when we had this return to, you know, turn away from ideology, largely religious, uh, to truth finding, you know, establishing the truth you know, in a way through openness, through empirical investigation, through sharing knowledge, through inclusion. Okay. That was the idea, and the idea was also that it would, you know, it was a kind of also a spiritual quest. It wasn't called enlightenment for nothing, you know. This was about, uh, uh, you know, it was a period of humanism. Yeah, it was about human beings reaching their full potential. But then you had this instrumentalization happening. So you had all this idea, all this knowledge, and the power that goes with it. You know, if you read Michel Foucault, you know that knowledge is also power. Uh, then, you know, it became instrumentalized. It became subjugated to lower interests, uh, materialist interests. And the problem is that science itself, because of its, the way it emerged as a critique of religion, yeah, very much justified critique, but it has a sort of a hangover there, a sort of a habitual uh, negation of anything religious. And I mean by religious, you know, the big questions. It doesn't, it shies away from the big questions, but we can't, you know, we can't shy away from the big questions. If we do, then we become materialist. Yeah, we, we sort of say, well, you know, Okay, to begin with, we are nothing but apes. Okay, we are a bunch of apes. Uh, we are uh, nothing but mortal beings. Okay, and it's, we are only this and only that. It's always all these tyranny of onlys, you know, it's scientific reductionism. It's only this, you know. But uh, it's, it's a very uh, a negative perspective on life this kind of reductionist materialism. It's not real science to me. It's a kind of a, a bitter uh, uh, life-denying kind of science. And the, the real science to me is about exploration, discovery, wonder, and indeed awe at the magnificent complexity of the world and indeed ourselves. Yeah. And so we need to, to find that. We need to stop reducing everything to material benefits and you know, material uh, status, you know, wealth. And these things are meaningless to a being that's only around for a few years. It's a complete nonsense. It's a complete distraction. Of course, we need to eat, we need to have shelter, we need clothing, but 
look at the COVID crisis, it's showing us how little we really need. What do we really need when it comes and push comes to shove? Very little materially. But the other needs are enormous, our social needs, our need for acceptance, for, for uh, a friendship, for love, for uh, community. Those are the things that really matter. We should remind ourselves. And then we can talk about economy, and which is ultimately a system for allocating resources. Oh, so how do we do that to maximize our well-being, our <clears throat> potential for community, for for uh, you know individual growth, you know through education uh, and so on. So yeah, it, the the real mind shift has to happen there somewhere. I think. Yeah. And it's a um, lot of hard work. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's, I mean, uh, I think, you know, for myself, I've made that mind shift long ago, okay? But I don't feel that I, I, I gave up anything or I lost anything. Quite to the contrary, I feel much freer, much, much more fulfilled, uh, much, much more whole much more at home in the world than before. So why not do it, you know? Well, what happened? Would you like to share with nothing us? To lose. <laughs> yeah. Nothing to lose. Yeah. What happened? Uh, can you, we have a f two more minutes. So what happened in your life that helped you shift that, your previous mind to your current mind? And I'm, I'm sure it is a journey. It's not a, an end. Oh, for me, it happened fairly earlier. I mean, as a teenager, I realized that I, I couldn't quite understand what all the, the, the this rat race was about, you know, uh, the sort of compulsive concern that people had with certain ideas of success. And I was very critical of that from an early age. And I, I guess I embarked on reading and I embarked on various ways of, of finding out, you know, something about what life is really, what, what's really important in life. And, and everybody, I, I wouldn't ever tell other people what to, what to hold important in life. It's, it's, it's really um, a process of, of asking the question. It's about the question. And gradually uh, you, you feel that a lot of things are not so important, you know. It actually is very liberating. And uh, yeah, it's it's really our connection to to other people that's that's primary, you know. And therefore, I think doing the right thing is not uh, something uh, you know. It's not about moralizing. It's but it's it's good for yourself, you know. Uh, if whether you're a businessman or a politician or community leader or whoever you are, or doctor, or it's about you know uh, contributing. It's about um, being part of something larger. That's how we derive our meaning and our, our fulfillment. And if we can build a, an economy on that principle, I think it would, it, it would be very different. Yeah. What a beautiful way to end um, our interview. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and uh, <laughs> for your willingness to share it with us. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.